The Sunday of Christmas tide, we're going to look at John 1. If you're using the church Bibles, it's found on page 1053, 1053. The opening of John's gospel is a masterpiece. It's one of the most theologically rich and dense passages in all of Scripture, and yet is expressed in simple prose, not using any technical terms, but just everyday, ordinary words. John's opening introduces us to all the major themes of his gospel. Jesus Christ, the only Son, light, life, bearing witness, believing in his name, new birth, glory. It's a roadmap to the book to come. Listen as I read John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, excuse me, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word. As I mentioned, this is an incredibly dense passage, but I just want to focus on two fundamental truths that we learn this morning. The Trinity's love is the heart of reality, and the word became flesh. The Trinity's love is the heart of reality, and the Word became flesh. John's Gospel is likely the last of all the Gospels to be written, possibly the last book of the entire Bible to be written. In the busy life of the very early church, Paul and other early church leaders wrote letters to spread the Gospel message around the Mediterranean world. And then after a few decades, as the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection started to age, they wrote down in these sort of spiritual biographies, uh, teaching biographies, the stories about Jesus. 
First, uh, Mark wrote his gospel, the shortest action-packed gospel, and he jumps right into the action. If you open to Mark 1, it begins with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. Jesus goes into the wilderness, and then he gets right to it. Then Matthew and Luke publish their gospels, and they say, actually, there's some important things about Jesus' birth that you need to know. And we looked at one of those birth stories last week. Uh, And they also include genealogies of Jesus that link Jesus' own life up with the larger history of Israel and the promises to Abraham and even the promises to Adam. So it sets Jesus' life in this larger context. But John, this beloved disciple who knew Jesus so closely, spends his whole life reflecting on how he might best tell the story of Jesus in a way that captures what it was like to live with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to know him in the flesh. John ends up including just a handful of signs that Jesus did, a few key conversations. And in fact, the whole second half of his book is about 36 hours of Jesus' life. And as John writes and edits and revises and shapes his gospel so carefully over his lifetime, he keeps asking, how do I begin this story. How do I start? Where do I begin? John goes farther back than the birth of Jesus, farther back than Israel or Abraham or even Adam. John goes right back into eternity itself. And he begins his gospel by saying the Trinity's love is the heart of reality. The Trinity's love, the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the very heart of reality. John sees that to make sense of Jesus and the life of discipleship to which Jesus calls his followers, we need an account of God and all reality. So John begins with this echo of the famous opening of Genesis 1, in the beginning. Genesis goes on to say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But John pauses at in the beginning. In Genesis 1, remember, God creates by speaking ten times. And John focuses on that, that this is a God who speaks, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Why does John call the Son, Jesus, the Word? When we want to express ourselves, we use our words. Others can identify us by our words. Words communicate. And yet, our words are also in some sense distinct from us. Well, John says, in the word, God has fully communicated himself. He has fully expressed himself. Word is a key term in scripture. Uh, We just finished uh, a series on the Ten Commandments, which in the Hebrew Old Testament are called the Ten Words. The prophets oftentimes talk about the word of the Lord. Remember, uh, men in the Bible study, Jonah begins uh, by saying, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And now John 2 says this word, God's speech, that's pivotal in creation, revelation, deliverance, in the beginning was that word. The rest of verses 1 and 2 focus on the word's relationship to God. And here John carefully balances two claims. First, the word was with God. 
The word is distinct from God and yet always in relationship to him. They're together at the beginning from eternity. But second, the word was God. The word is distinct from God, but it also is God. And then in verse 2, John immediately repeats, he was in the beginning with God. So there's both identity and distinction. Well, here are two ideas that we have to hold together, but that our finite minds can't fully grasp. Trying to understand the doctrine of the Trinity is like trying to hold together the wrong ends of a magnet. We just can't get them to hold together easily in our mind. John Calvin loves quoting this line from Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, he quotes it several times, including in his comments on John 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, Gregory of Nazianzus in this quote says, I cannot think on the one, the unity of God, without quickly being encircled by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without straightway being carried back to the one. It's like putting the wrong poles of a magnet together. You can't, it just keeps going back and forth. You can't hold it all together. We can't fully grasp this. Of course we can't fully grasp this. We finite creatures, how could we fully grasp the nature of the infinite creator? And yet John clearly teaches this paradox, this great mystery. The word is with God and the word is God. There are three and yet these three are one. But John isn't making an abstract or obscure theological point here. Rather, he's pointing us to the very heart of reality, the Trinity's love. God in his very being, us Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ever three and ever one. And this triune life is fundamentally characterized by love. We see this in verses 14 and 18. John shifts from calling the second person of the Trinity the Word and calls him the only Son from the Father, the only God who is at the Father's side. Uh, this word only, it's, it's, it's more than that. John's saying the Word is the Father's one and only, his beloved, his firstborn, who is at the Father's side. At the Father's side, that same phrase is used later in John's Gospel to describe the beloved disciple leaning on Jesus, uh, my wife and daughter tell me we shouldn't say old King James leaning on his bosom, but uh, leaning on his chest, whatever he's doing, he's relaxing, leaning on Jesus. And that same word John uses here to say this only son is resting on his father. He's leaning on his father's chest. He's close to his father's heart. What's your absolutely warmest memory of your father? Maybe it's walking hand in hand through the woods, maybe dancing with him at your wedding. Or maybe you don't have many warm memories of your father, but you have aches and sorrows and a wish that you had had a warm relationship. Either way, that, that, that father love that we experience here on earth is just a little glimmer or reflection of that love between God the Father and God the Son from all eternity. In John 17, in his long prayer at the Last Supper with his disciples, Jesus pulls back the curtain a bit and lets us glimpse what this relationship is like between the Father and the Son. And it's a picture of a rich, loving, intimate relationship. 
Jesus speaks of unity between the Father and the Son, shared glory and love and purpose and life. And John's telling us here that the Trinity's love is at the very heart of reality. In verses 3 through 5, John turns from the word's relationship to God and talks about the word's relationship to the world, to creation, that all, to all that is. All things were made through him. Every galaxy and nebula and star and every molecule and cell and virus, from the biggest to the smallest, all was made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Everything from the biggest galaxy to, as one theologian puts it, the bacteria living in your septic tank, all of it exists only because it was made by God through his word. All things were made through him. There's nothing else out there. There's only the triune creator and all the things he has created. And the word is life and light. The word enlivens and enlightens creation. And so, if Father, Son, and Holy Spirit brought all things into being, then that means what's really real, the fundamental reality of all things, of the world, is not power or survival of the fittest or sheer chance, but love. The Trinity's love is the very heart of reality. It's the most real thing that there is. That alone is a daring claim for John to make. John calls us what, to rethink what we think the world is like, what's going on. But he doesn't stop there. He makes a second claim in verse 14 that's even more daring. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. If this verse is familiar to you, and it probably is to many of us, we can miss how audacious John's claim is. We're almost inoculated to how shocking this is. The word became flesh. Flesh isn't sinful or negative, but flesh is fragile, finite, limited, liable to pain, grief, rejection, oppression, and even death. And John said, the word who was with God since the beginning, who is God, through whom all things were made, that word became flesh. The technical term for this is the incarnation. If you have even a passing familiarity with Spanish, you can probably make out what that Latin term means. Carne is meat, flesh. Incarnation means enfleshment, embodiment, the embodying of the Son of God. The God who created all things becomes a creature. The Almighty becomes fragile. The infinite takes on limitations. God himself becomes subject and liable to pain, grief, rejection, suffering, oppression, even death. The Son of God takes on flesh that can be broken. He takes blood that can be spilled, life that can be laid down. The Word became flesh. 
But that doesn't mean the word turned from one thing into another. Rather, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully human. Two natures, united, but not mixed or confused, in one person. Again, we can't get the magnets to go together. How can it be fully God and fully man? We know it's true, and yet our limited minds can't really pin down exactly how it fits together. With the Trinity and the Incarnation, John is asking us to contemplate the most difficult thoughts the human mind has ever encountered. Here are richer depths than anything physics teaches or mathematics, any of that. Here is something we almost can't comprehend, and yet we know that it is true. Uh, as one scholar puts it, John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in the light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. What we see Jesus saying and doing in the Gospel of John is the words and actions of God himself. John opens his Gospel like this because the Son's relationship to God is essential for understanding Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection. Jesus is simply incomprehensible outside of his re eternal relationship to God. That is to say, there's no that meets the eye. The God of all the universe is in the baby lying in a manger. In the young boy growing up in Joseph and Mary's house, in the young man leading his disciples, the God of all the universe is in the man dying on the cross. The union between the Father and Son is essential for making sense of the story of Jesus. But, John says, Jesus' life is essential for understanding God. Knowing Jesus is related to God helps us to understand Jesus, but knowing Jesus is related to God helps us to understand what God is like. John says, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but this only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That word dwelt among us, it's a word used for setting up a tent. It's the word used for setting up the tabernacle in the end of Exodus. Uh, if you stick with us for the Exodus series, we'll get there in a few months. John says the word became flesh, and in that flesh, God himself tabernacled in our midst. In Jesus, God moved into the world and lived next door so that we could see what he is like. The light shines in the darkness. No one has ever seen God but the only God, the beloved Son who is at the Father's side. He has made God known. Uh, the word that John uses, made, in John 1.3 there, where he says all things were made through him, it's not the word that the Greek translation of Genesis 1.1 uses, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But the word that the Greek translation uses for created in Genesis 1.1 is used by John later in his gospel. In fact, in the very last verse, John says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did, that's that word that's used for created in Genesis 1.1, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so in a sense, John's entire gospel is plugged in, in between, in the beginning, God, 
created heavens and the earth. It's, it's between God or in the beginning and created. And that, the whole gospel is saying this is what God is like. God is like this story of Jesus' life. The word made flesh narrates to us God's very nature. Jesus interprets for us what God is like. Through the enfleshed Son, we can see and know the God whom no one has ever seen. Jesus reveals God to us. If we want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Read John's story of Jesus' life. At least segments of our society that focus on love being fundamental, they're right insofar as they focus on the importance of love. John says the same thing. The Trinity's love is at the very heart of reality. And yet a lot of our culture has a fairly thin conception of love. Oh, you don't love him or her anymore? Well, go be with whoever you do love now, because what's most important is that you're happy. And happiness and love seem to be more or less equated. But John tells us something far more profound about the nature of love. We already read it earlier from John 1. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his love for us. This is what it means to say that the Trinity is love, that the word would take on flesh and dwell among us and die for us. Jesus then reconfigures what glory looks like. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory in the Old Testament and even to the shepherds on Christmas Day is a visible manifestation of God's presence. Uh, In the Exodus series, we looked at Exodus 19. Israel comes to Mount Sinai and God's presence descends on Mount Sinai. And what does it look like? Thunder and lightning and darkness and earthquakes and a super loud trumpet blast. We might expect that glory keeps getting bigger and bigger, more and more exciting like the special effects in these Marvel films. But now, John says, we see the glory of the Word made flesh. It's a different sort of glory. Glory as of the only Father, or only Son from the Father. The glory of God, His presence made visible, is manifest through a perfectly lived human life. A life in constant, unbroken relationship to the Father, a life full of of grace and truth. We might even say a life of superabundant grace and truth that overflows to us. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. In verse 1, uh, John begins in eternity with the Trinity's love. And then in verse 3, John turns to the word creation. And we don't have time to look more closely at it, but verse to the ups and downs of history. Although God created the world good, it is shrouded in darkness from God. But John says the light of the word shines in the midst of the darkness. God continues to be involved with the history of the world, with all its darkness and messiness and sin and evil and brokenness and death and pain and destruction. And John says, despite the reality of darkness, things look pretty grim. The big picture of the world and of all of history finds its focal point in the life of Jesus. And John reassures us right at the beginning, the darkness will not overcome the light. In the end, the darkness doesn't win. Love, light, life. 
That is, the word of God will have the last word. This contrast between light and darkness plays out in our own lives. In verses 11 and 12, John says that the true light came to his own, but they did not receive him. The light shines in the darkness, but not everyone receives that light. Yet to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's that uh, uh, good news that we read from Galatians earlier. That we are now sons and daughters of God, that we have his spirit within us. How? By receiving the light, by believing in his name. I mentioned earlier in verse 18 when it says that the son is at the father's side, that he's leaning on his chest, and that that same phrase is used at the Last Supper for the beloved disciple leaning against Jesus' chest, resting against Jesus in intimate friendship. But what we're told here in the beginning of the gospel is that through Jesus, the beloved disciple is invited into the Trinity's love into the mystery of the intimacy of father and son. The son rests on the father, the beloved disciple rests on the son, and so is brought into that eternal love. But verses 12 and 13 say this is also an open invitation to each one of us. Each of us are called to be the beloved disciple, to follow Jesus and to be loved by him, to rest on Jesus. That's what believing in his name means, is that we're resting on him. To believe in his name, and so we are given the right to become children of God. Through Jesus, we can all experience the eternal love of the Father for his only Son. But it turns on testimony, on witness. How do we respond? That's what John says in the opening here. How do we respond to the witness about Jesus? Will we receive Jesus as the revelation of the glory of God as the word and flesh is our way into intimate communion with God? Or will we not receive him and therefore remain in darkness? I know I've hardly done justice to this rich, dense opening chapter, but I hope you see at least a bit of why it's so daring and audacious, why it's so marvelous. In simple terms, John tells us that at the very heart of reality, the core of all things is the eternal, superabundant love of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Although the world is shrouded in darkness, the light of God's word shines into that darkness. God's word becomes flesh and dwells among us so that we can see God's glory, so that we can receive grace upon grace. This is the big story of all things. John says this is the big context that you need to make sense of Jesus' life. But it's also the big context you need to make sense of your life. The question then is, do we turn to light or darkness? Do we believe in his name or do we not receive him? Do we rest on the son's chest and allow ourselves to be drawn into the eternal love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that your word was made flesh and dwelled among us so that we could see your glory, so that we could know you, so that light would shine in the midst of darkness, so that we could be enlightened. We thank you that we are invited to receive you, 
to believe in your name, to rest on your chest. Gracious Lord, be at work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts even now. For some of us, we've never believed in Jesus' name. We ask that you would, by your work of your Holy Spirit, enable us to call out, Abba, Father. Others of us, Lord, have long known that we are your own, and yet we once again need to be refreshed by your eternal love for us. Do this work in us even now as we sing your praises. Amen.